If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to Isaiah chapter 56 as we enter into the third and the final major section of the book of Isaiah. Um, and we hit the final stretch, as it were, in our Isaiah sermon series. We're going to have one break uh, from the series on November 7th, but otherwise, Lord willing, we'll be in Isaiah for the next uh, number of Sundays, all the way up until December 26th, where we will study Isaiah 66 and close out this series uh, for now. But today we're in Isaiah uh, 56 and 57. If you've studied stories at all, you know that a typical storyline has a, an introduction followed by some rising action or, or conflict that leads to a climax and then finally a resolution. And when you're reading a book or watching a movie or a TV show, often what you're waiting for is, is the climax. Uh, you're waiting for the moment when all of the pieces uh, of the story come together, when the crime is solved or when the couple gets together or when the quest is completed. But if you're invested in a story, if it's a good story, then you're just as curious about what happens after the climax. You want to know the, the rest of the story for all the characters. You're interested in the, the resolution and, and you uh, read about what happens afterwards. Isaiah 53 through 56 and its description of the, the suffering servant and the results of his suffering could probably be considered the, the climax of the book of Isaiah. Since chapter one, we've been asking, how can God's faithless people become faithful? How can sinful Jerusalem become the righteous new Jerusalem that's described at the end of the book? And the fourth servant song of Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12 tells us that it's going to happen through the surprising work of the servant who is going to suffer and die and rise again. And it's through repentance and faith in the Messiah that we can know the eternal river of blessings that flow from the wounds of Jesus. The hope for humanity is not a self-improvement project. It's not trying harder. It's not our own efforts. It's not our combined efforts. It's not the efforts of some world leader or nation, including our own, that's going to bring peace and righteousness into the world. It is the work of God sending Jesus the word made flesh to give life and perfect righteousness and to die for our sin and our rebellion. Th this is what we call the gospel. This is the, the good news of Jesus. He has come to redeem us, to save us, to make us his own. And not only that, but he is coming again to bring restoration and bring life to the entire world. But what about right now? How do we who have trusted in the, the servant, in Jesus, how do we live in between the, the coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus? How do we live between the finished work of the cross and the future fullness of the kingdom? How do we live in this resolution period, you might say? Unlike those Isaiah was originally writing to, we are not waiting for the Messiah to come in the first place, and yet we also are waiting for his return. We're not waiting for the kingdom. In the words of Jesus, the kingdom is among us, and yet we are waiting for it nonetheless. This all points us to something we talk about called the already and the not yet of the kingdom and of our salvation. We are saved, and we are being saved, and we will be saved. We are sanctified, 
We are being sanctified and we will be sanctified. We are righteous, we are being made righteous, and we will be righteous. And while the the climax of the story has happened and the, the second high point of the story of redemption is still coming, we who are a part of this in-between section of the story, we wanna know what our role is. How do we live? What are we supposed to do as we wait? Isaiah helps us see in today's passage as well in, as, as these 11 final chapters that our role is to walk by faith. In the words of Alec Motyer, we are called to quote, a faith that persists, prays, and waits in hope. This is what we do. We're called to a faith that persists, that prays, and that waits. He goes on to write this, quote, we would indeed be blind not to observe that, 56, that Isaiah 56 one reflects precisely where the church stands today, looking back to the once for all redemption at Calvary and awaiting the final divine act which will rescue the church from sin, failure, and opposition and deal finally with any and every counterforce. And in this in-between moment, we wait in faith. When we think about waiting, we probably envision a, a long line that we have to stand in. As this series is going to stretch into Advent, we might also think about waiting for the, the Messiah's coming that we remember and experience in that time of year. Waiting feels like a very passive and very fruitless act. Tom Petty says the waiting is the hardest part. I think there's something to that. Nobody likes waiting. Uh, if you, it's why your Starbucks Starbucks app says skip the line and order ahead. It's why places like Disney World offer the fast pass so that you can jump to the front of the line on Space Mountain and not have to stand at the back with all the people that can't afford the fast pass. Uh, But the waiting that Isaiah uh, calls us to is not fruitless, it's not passive. It's rather a waiting that yields fruit. It's an active waiting. We wait for the return of the Lord, but since he has come and he sent his spirit to live in us, we are being changed as we wait. We are being formed into the likeness of Jesus as we wait. We are active in our waiting. And in chapters 56 and 57, we see what God desires us to, us to look like and who Christ is forming us to be in this waiting period. We're shown how we should live as we wait for the renewal of creation in the second coming. But let's be really clear, this is not a new law. It's not the way that we earn salvation. Rather, it's the obedience that that flows from faith in the work of the suffering servant and the hope of the coming conquering king. It's something that we don't do on our own, as we'll see, but it's something that we continue to rely on God to do in us. But if we faithfully wait on the Lord, he's going to bear good fruit in our lives. This is the promise of the passage, and it's our big idea. It's this faithful waiting yields the fruit of righteousness and welcome. Faithful waiting yields the fruit of righteousness and welcome. So what then do we look like as we live as citizens of Christ's kingdom awaiting for its fullness to come? We look like people who are patiently and faithfully waiting and therefore bearing the fruits of righteousness and welcome. Faithful waiting yields the fruit of righteousness and welcome. This is borne out most fully in in chapter 56 verses 1 through 8, which is part of what Joshua read earlier, and it's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today, just so you know. So if we spend a lot of time here, don't worry, we're going to fly through the rest of the, the passage. These first eight verses, they highlight two fruits 
uh, righteousness or justice and welcome or openness is how we're gonna describe them. So the first fruit of faithful waiting is there in verses one and two, it's righteousness and justice. Let me read these verses again. Isaiah 56, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. There's three keep statements in there that I think help us understand what righteousness and justice look like as we wait. And the first is to keep and do righteousness. It's to positively seek after the righteousness of of the law and the justice that's, that's reflected in the character of the Lord. So Jesus teaches us that the law is summarized in two commands. The command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We can think of righteousness in those terms. We can think of righteousness as a reflection of the character of the Lord, which is of goodness and love. Deuteronomy 34 tells us that he is a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, while exercising perfect justice on the guilty. So the the fruit of faithful waiting is a righteousness, a righteousness that shows mercy and grace to others. What does righteousness look like? It looks like being slow to anger, not hot-tempered or easily frustrated. It's a righteousness that overflows with faithful love to all, a a righteousness that's ready to forgive the offenses of others. It seeks justice for the oppressed while leaving vengeance to the Lord. It's a righteousness that the Spirit is working in us so that we overflow with the fruit of the Spirit, with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and thereby reflect the heart of God and reflect the life of Jesus and show forth the fruit of the Spirit. That's what righteousness is. But this righteousness not only reflects the character of God, it points forward to the, to the righteousness of the coming kingdom. In verse one there, the, the Lord calls us to seek righteousness, not so that we can earn our salvation, but because God's salvation is coming soon and his righteousness is going to be revealed on that day. Our righteous living makes us, as Jesus says, the salt of the earth, makes us the light of the world, flavoring preserving, revealing that the kingdom is coming and that it's a place of perfect righteousness. Your righteousness, my righteousness, it's not a personal checklist. It's a a cosmic witness to who God is and to what his kingdom looks like and the reality that it is coming. We are to keep justice and do righteousness, but we're also told here we're supposed to keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath, that's a a reference to the call of God to cease from work on the seventh day of each week as a means of worship and trust in the Lord. Though it's part of the even wider system of all the feasts and the year of Jubilee that was laid out for the, the Jewish people. The emphasis on Sabbath keeping is interesting. It's it's in fact very surprising. The last time that Isaiah mentioned the Sabbath was way back in chapter one. 
and he hasn't mentioned it since. Isaiah 1.13, God is calling out Judah's hypocrisy and his false religion, and God says, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. So he's telling them, stop practicing the Sabbath because you're doing it with divided hearts. You're being wicked and trying to practice the Sabbath. He wants them to not do it alongside their iniquity. And now for the first time, Sabbath is brought back up and it's mentioned five times in these last 11 chapters. Three times here in chapter 56 alone, once in chapter 58, and then the second to last verse of Isaiah says this, from new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. So I think something's going on here. Uh, why the sudden emphasis on Sabbath? I'll take a stab. <laughs> is, it, is it that the people of God, redeemed by the Messiah's suffering, death, and resurrection, can now finally keep the Sabbath with purity? That, that they can truly trust and rest, or they can truly rest because they are trusting in the finished work of Jesus. This seems to be what the author of Hebrews is getting at. In Hebrews 4, he says that we who have believed have entered into this rest through Christ. A rest from, the, from toil that we can live in every day of our lives as we wait for the fullness of the Sabbath rest in Jesus that we will know in the future. To practice a Sabbath rest is at its heart an act of faith. It's an act that trusts that the Lord is going to meet our needs, not through our own efforts, but through his gracious power. It's an invitation to, to rest, but to rest on him in every area of our lives. And in the gospel, we practice Sabbath by finding our rest in Jesus, by trusting that we can't save ourselves through our efforts, but rather that Jesus can, and he has, and he will save us. Righteousness is resting in Jesus and trusting that he produces righteousness in us. So what does that practically look like? William Still says this, quote, the call to observe the Sabbath is really an invitation to enter into the rest of faith, which is symbolized by us when we cease to do ordinary work. Hmm. Is there a resting in Jesus that should mark out every day of our lives? Yes, for sure. Is there a benefit to ceasing from ordinary work one day each week to remind ourselves that we are saved by God's grace alone and that we are awaiting an eternal Sabbath of perfect rest. Does practicing Sabbath realign the, the priorities of our heart and remove our trust in ourselves and remind us of what is most true and real? Of course it does. <laughs> do, do we have to practice Sabbath? No. But can you think of a better way to remind your heart and your soul that your salvation is found in resting in Jesus alone? Or that we can bear fruit only as we rest in Jesus? Or that a, a day of final rest is coming? If you can come up with a better way, just let me know. But until then, until we come up with a better way than the one God's given us, uh, I think we should all think long and hard about what, what a true practicing of Sabbath would look like in our lives. And if that sounds really hard, then it probably means we should try even harder to do it. 
keep justice, keep the Sabbath. And the final keep statement that helps us understand what righteousness is, is to keep ourselves from evil and wickedness. To be righteous is to shun evil. It's, it's to see that our sins, whether private or public, harm others. God's people are to be marked by holiness in every area of life. And that means rejecting evil. If righteousness is the fruit of the Spirit, then wickedness is the works of the flesh, which Galatians 5 also talks about, along with the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5 gives us a, a list to help us understand what, what we are supposed to shun, what is evil. It, the list of the, of the works of the flesh, it goes like this. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. And we must root out these evils from our lives for the glory of God. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 5.3, among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. For the follower of, of Jesus, faithful waiting yields the fruits of righteousness and justice, which means we keep righteousness, seeking to reflect the Father's character in his coming kingdom. It means that we keep the Sabbath, that we let our lives be a constant resting in what Jesus has done and that we keep ourselves from wickedness. We show that we have been brought out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. And we do all of this in his strength, knowing that his righteousness is ours through faith and that his salvation is coming. Besides righteousness and justice, faithful waiting yields another fruit, and it's the fruit of welcome and openness. Welcome and openness. If you remember back in chapter 55, right at the beginning, the call went out to anyone who was thirsty, anyone who was hungry. Everyone was, everyone was invited to come to the feast that was purchased by Jesus. And in case we weren't sure if everyone meant everyone, the Lord makes it clear that he means everyone is welcome. Uh, we might have a party and we say, anyone is welcome to come, but we don't really mean it. <laughs> we have a, a list of acceptable guests while others are not welcome. But the invitation to this feast is truly open to everyone. Listen to these words again in, in chapter 56, beginning in verse 3 through verse 8. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane him and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. I think it's hard to overstate the shock 
that it is for the eunuch and the foreigner to be the poster children of who is welcomed into the kingdom. In part because the law was clear that both of them were excluded in various ways from God's people and from the temple. Their exclusion was, was rooted in protecting God's people from a pagan and idolatrous influence. So the eunuch was often the one who had mutilated his body in worship to a false god. And the nations were those that practiced idolatry and therefore they were both excluded from God's people so that they would not lead them down the path of false worship. And yet here, they're welcomed at the Lord's table. But notice this, notice that the eunuchs and the foreigners mentioned here are those who have joined themselves to the Lord. Verses three and six. They are those who love the Lord. They're the ones that desire to serve him. They've been transformed through faith and they're walking in the righteousness of the kingdom, keeping the Sabbath, shunning evil, pursuing justice, all as evidence that they've been truly transformed by the work of the servant. And for those who come to the Lord, they receive blessings that could be theirs only in Christ. The eunuch is supposed to not, no longer say that he is a dry tree, meaning he's not supposed to say that he has no offspring. He's not supposed to say that he has no name that will continue on beyond him. Rather, he is to see in Christ that he is part of God's everlasting family and that he has the hope of spiritual children that are even better than physical sons and daughters. The connection can be made to the, to the single man or the single woman or the, the childless couple, to, to those who long for marriage or for sons and daughters, because in Christ they are part of an eternal family and they are given a name that will never be cut off. The foretaste of that, of those blessings that come from Christ, are found here. They're found in the church. The family of God, especially the local church, is supposed to reflect the depth of relationship that's found through our common faith in Jesus. This is a place where you have spiritual mothers and fathers. It's a place where we call each other brother and sister. The nuclear family, is, the, the blood-related family is a wonderful and beautiful thing, but it should not keep us from opening our hearts and our lives to others that are in our family of faith. To joyfully invite others to mentor and disciple our children. To, to welcome others into our familial closeness such that they feel welcomed as much as any blood relation ever has felt in our families. This is the openness that's shown to us in Christ and it's the openness that we're supposed to show to one another. Are our doors and our tables and our lives open in that way? Are they as open as the Lord's table is? Or do we exclude some people? The foreigner is also mentioned. The one who had worshiped false gods is now invited to worship the Lord on his mountain. They're not held in, in suspicion, but welcomed as, as family. In God's kingdom, the outsider becomes an insider. The rejected becomes accepted. The fruitless becomes fruitful. We can think about Jesus' parable of the wedding feast where the poor and the homeless and the outcast are not simply invited, but as Joshua reminded me this week, they are compelled to come to the feast. It's almost drugged to the feast by the Lord. The welcoming of the outcast doesn't mean the exclusion of Israel. We see in verse eight, God's people who had been cast out and exiled are brought in as well. But as he says in verse eight, I will gather yet others to him. What an interesting phrase. The Lord says he's going to gather others 
to the servant. And Jesus, you remember, is the good shepherd. And what does he say? I have other sheep who are not of this fold. Do you ever feel like an outsider? Do you ever feel like you're just misunderstood or rejected? We've all felt that and sometimes still feel it. Do you ever feel like you just don't belong anywhere? In God's kingdom, all who attach themselves to the Lord are welcomed in. The Lord knows exactly who you are, and he loves you. Could we show that kind of love to one another? Are the people that are a part of us that feel like an outsider, that feel misunderstood and rejected, that should feel welcomed? For we who have received such undeserved love, do we treat others as outsiders? Is our gospel invitation truly open to all? Are we welcoming to all? Are we compelling others to come to Christ and welcoming them as we would welcome our family? Or are there people that on a Sunday afternoon we'd rather they didn't walk through the doors? Do we say with our mouth that our doors are wide open but then we slam them in the face of some people? William Still, another great quote from a sermon I heard this week. He said, the last thing that a Christian church must be is exclusive. The last thing that a Christian church must be is exclusive. We're not a country club. <laughs> We're not a place where people are pushed out, but that all are welcomed in who attach themselves to the Lord. Often we are exclusive. Rather than modeling the welcome and the openness of the gospel we've received, we hold people at arm's length. We reject others. We're closed off. And that's the spirit that Jesus condemns when he quotes Isaiah 56, 7 in his ministry. As he observed the selling that was happening in the temple, he was moved to righteous anger. Why? His anger was over the exclusion of the outsiders. The buying and the selling was happening in a very specific place in the temple. It was happening in the court of the Gentiles, this place where the only place where non-Jews were invited to come and to pray to the Lord. And Jesus clears the table, reminds the leaders and the people that his house is a house of prayer for all nations, for all people. The context of these verses in the Gospels is similar to the rest of chapter 56, which addresses the, the failure of Israel's leaders to promote righteousness and justice and to share God's heart of openness and welcome. Followed then by chapter 57, verses 1 through 13, where Israel is seen to rest and to trust in idols rather than the Lord. The ideal picture of righteousness and justice, of welcome and openness, is brought back to a harsh reality in verse 9 by the reminder that this waiting period is also marked by failing leadership and futile idolatry. That's how I would head chapter 56, verse 9, all the way through chapter 57, verse 13. It's failing leadership and futile idolatry. We don't have time to cover these verses in details, but I would invite you to consider them more fully on your own. I'll give you some things to think about. In, in 56, 9 through 13, we see Israel's leaders who are supposed to be watchmen. They're supposed to be shepherds for God's people, and they're leading them, uh, leading them in the ways of, of righteousness and welcome, but they completely fail at this. They are blind watchmen. Can you think of a more... Uh, to be blind and be a watchman doesn't seem to make any sense, right? <laughs> They're supposed to be on the lookout for sin and wickedness in God's people, but they can't see. And then Isaiah draws this picture that they're like a guard dog 
that can't bark. Can you imagine? A dog that's supposed to guard, but he can't make a noise. They're supposed to be shepherds leading the flock, but they have no understanding, and they're looking out for only their own interests. Verse 12 says that their, own con- their only concern is their own pleasure. All they care about is, is seeking the diversions of this life and hoping that the next day is going to be even better than today. As I thought about these verses, I thought, doesn't this help us to understand how we can pray for our leaders? Leaders of churches, leaders of denominations, leaders of the church worldwide. We could pray, Lord, open the eyes of our leaders to the evil that is threatening the church. Give them a boldness, boldness like a a guard dog who isn't afraid to bark when the beasts show up. Make our leaders good shepherds who are willing to lay down their lives for the sheep. Make them tender shepherds who who care for the hurting and the vulnerable. Guard them from being distracted by the pleasures of this life. Give them a heart for things that are eternal, not just for the good of the next day. And all of that is a prayer of simply saying, Lord, let our leaders be like Jesus, the good shepherd. Let's pray for our leaders to read what Israel's leaders were like and then pray the opposite for the leaders of our church and beyond. And we pray for our leaders because failing leadership leads to futile idolatry amongst God's people. Let me cheat. I listened to a sermon by Jamie Child. He offered just this great summary of chapter 57. He called it an inventory of idolatry. Uh, Let me just run through this. Verse 1, this is speaking about God's people. The leaders have led to idolatry amongst the people. Verse 1, the people of God don't recognize righteousness when it's living amongst them, and instead they persecute it. Verse three, they're the offspring, not of God and his suffering servant, but instead of a sorcerer and spiritual adulterer. Verse four, they mock God rather than worship him. Verse five, their most intimate union is with each other in pagan revelries, not with God. Verse five, they kill their children rather than cultivating them so that the people of God might grow. Verse six, they offer sacrifices but not to God, but to idols. Verse seven, they head up the mountains to worship, but not Mount Zion, to God's temple, but rather to the hills and the mountains of Israel to offer to the idols. Verse eight, they make covenants, but with the idols, not with God. And verse nine, they've gone to the nations, but not to draw them in that they might worship with them, but instead to make alliances with them. And then the Lord speaks in verses 11 through 13, and he reveals that his people have no fear or reverence of him. They've forsaken him. And so he says they can call out to their idols when trouble comes. How sadly ironic that the Lord invites all nations who will join themselves to him to come while his people are joining themselves to the gods of the nations. Brothers and sisters, we have to beware of letting our hearts be drawn away to trusting and worshiping other thing, anything other than the Lord because it will always fail us in the end. But there's this beautiful hope in verses 1 through 13. There are righteous men and women who are left. In verse, in verse 2, there are those that are, who rest in their beds because they walk in uprightness. In verse 13, the promise remains for those who take refuge in the Lord, that they will be blessed. And the remainder of chapter 57 shows us that the humble who rest, that the humble will rest in the Lord. So let's read Isaiah 57 verses 14 through 21. This is how the the chapter closes. 
And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made because the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry, I struck him. I hid my face and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God for the wicked. The Lord rebukes his people's lack of righteousness and justice and their failure to be welcoming and opening. But there is hope promised to who? To the humble. There's hope promised to the humble. Humility brings hope. But there is no peace for the wicked. Humility brings hope. Hope, just as the, the eunuchs and the foreigners are welcomed in, the humble and the contrite are welcomed back. For we who have failed to keep righteousness, for we who have failed to keep the Sabbath, for we who have failed to keep ourselves from wickedness, for we who have rejected those that God welcomes, we have the promise that if we come to the Lord in repentance and faith, in humility, he will revive us. Though the Lord rebukes us, he will heal us. Blessed, said Jesus, are those who mourn. Why? Because they will be comforted. For the wicked, there is no hope of peace. If we remain in our wickedness, each day will not grow better, it will get darker. But if we live lives of humble repentance and contrite faith, then we can be those that bear fruit as we wait. And so maybe we should add humility to our big idea. We should say, humble and faithful waiting yields the fruit of righteousness and welcome. Isn't it humility that rests in the Lord, knowing that he's the only one that can bear fruit in our lives? And it isn't humility that causes us to see ourselves and all people so that we say, if I've been accepted, then surely they can be accepted, and surely I will accept them. So my prayer is that the Spirit would be awakening in our hearts a desire to humbly and to faithfully seek after the righteousness and the welcome that reflects our Savior. But that we would do it in a spirit of humility, a spirit of faith, a spirit of resting on the Lord, in the spirit of the gospel, not in a spirit of legalism. As I've been studying this, these words from a song by Andrew Peterson keep coming to mind. So hear them as a call to walk in humility and faith and trust God for the fruit. A sort of benediction before the benediction. <laughs> this is what he said. You don't have to work so hard. You can rest easy. You don't have to prove yourself. You're already mine. You don't have to hide your heart. I already love you. I hold it in mind.
so you can rest easy. Let's take a moment of silence and then I will pray. Father, we hear this call to righteousness and justice, this call to welcome and openness. And we want it to be in our lives. We want to reflect who you are. But Lord, help us not to go down the path of thinking that we can do that on our own. (laughs) Help us, Lord, to rest in you. Lord, to to trust that you are the one that, that brings fruit in our lives, that it's not rooted in our efforts any more than our salvation is. And so, Lord, help us to find that balance of how do, we, how do we rest and yet also actively seek after these things. Lord, help us to, to know what that looks like as we, as we wait for your coming, as we wait for the, the fullness of our redemption. And may we do this, Lord, in a, in a way that shows forth your beauty. Help us to be a church, Lord, that is righteous a church that actively pursues righteousness, a church that practices the rest of Sabbath, a a church that rejects wickedness, but also, Lord, help us to be a church that is welcome and open to all people, a church that is a family to those who have no family and is a family uh, beyond even our own families. Lord, help us to welcome all people who walk through our doors because you have welcomed us when we were poor and naked and blind and helpless. Lord, thank you for Jesus. We ask all this in his name. Amen.